Welcome to Intuitive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsten Ackerman. I'm a registered dietitian specializing in intuitive eating and health at every size. I'm also the founder of the Intuitive RD, a project that aims to provide weight-inclusive nutrition education through workshops, online courses, retreats, written content, and private counseling. Join me as we explore the foundations of the non-diet approach to health and wellness and chat with leading professionals in the field. Hey guys, welcome to episode 14 of Intuitive Bites. This episode today is all about food addiction. So I'm talking with Marcy Evans, who is another registered dietitian who has a lot of knowledge on this topic of food addiction and and the research behind it. Um, So this is a a really interesting topic. I think a lot of people um, are going to get a lot out of this one. Um, So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, A couple things I want to mention before I get into that. So first of all, um, I just found an awesome app called Peace with Food that I really want to tell you guys about. Um, So as the name kind of uh, implies, it is all about intuitive eating. So rather than using you know, the trackers for tracking calories and, and things like that um, and kind of micromanaging nutrients, Peace With Food allows you to check in with your hunger and fullness cues throughout the day. Um, it can send you notifications to like stay present. Um, and it really just helps you and supports you to eat with more intention and mindfulness. Um, So it's a really awesome app. I definitely would recommend you guys go ahead and check that out. Um, It's really the best one I've seen out there um, that can really help support intuitive eating. The cool thing as well is that you can really work with your dietitian to use this app. So if you you know, are tracking your hunger and fullness levels throughout the day and you bring that into your dietitian, um, you know, that can be helpful in, in moving forward with, with really supporting your, your journey forward that way. Um, so that's another cool way to use it. But you certainly don't have to use it with a dietitian. You can, you know, use it by yourself as well. Um, so that is the Peace With Food app, like I said. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention is just um, basically I want to highlight my uh, two available online courses. So I have one that is an introduction to intuitive eating, really a foundation course for people who are new to intuitive eating and you know haven't read the book yet, but really want to get a little bit more information about you know the principles of intuitive eating and really what it's all about. Um, so that's that's a course that you can purchase um, through my the link in the bio of my Instagram. Um, if you click it there, you can you can purchase that. There's also another course available, which is a little bit more nuanced, um, and it's really for uh, people who have had weight loss surgery. Um, So a lot of my listeners have heard me talk about, you know, that I have um, a background working with bariatric surgery patients um, before I kind of got into, you know, the whole intuitive eating and health at every size world. Um, So now this is kind of my way of giving back to that community um, and really helping them to find intuitive eating after having weight loss surgery. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, nuances and things that are different 
for somebody who's had surgery when it comes to connecting to their body cues um, and also just making peace with their body. Um, so this course, I'm, I'm really, really excited to be introducing it now. Um, and you can also find that in that same link in, in my bio. So if you guys have any questions on the courses or you're interested, um, feel free to reach out to me anytime. Um, you can send me a message on my Instagram um, or you can always send me an email as well, um, which is theintuitiverd at gmail.com. Um, and finally, one last thing I wanted to highlight for you guys, I do offer one-on-one support with intuitive eating. Um, so that's something that you can definitely ask me about as well. Uh, at this time, it's all virtual based. So I've worked with people all over the country and even some outside the country. Um, so, you know, by phone or Skype or Zoom, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, so definitely feel free to inquire about that if you're interested. All right, guys, so let's get on to listening to my awesome conversation with Marcy about food addiction. Okay, so uh, ready to go, Marcy. Um, So this topic that I wanted to uh, talk about with you is the topic of food addiction, which I know is one that you've you've spoken about before. (laughs) Um, So I'd love to start by just kind of asking you, Um, how you got interested in this topic and really started exploring it further. Sure. I'm so happy to be here. And I love talking about this topic. As you had mentioned, I've I've talked about it in several other places on different podcasts. I've written about it on my blog. And it's, it's such an interesting and compelling topic for me as a practitioner because it's very relatable to a lot of what my clients describe their experience has been with food, but it's also really interesting to me because I really like the science behind it. But I initially got interested in the topic through one of my most important mentors. Her name is Evelyn Triboli. Some of your listeners might know that (laughs) that name because she's the co-author of Intuitive Eating. And I went to um, a number of her trainings, but one of her trainings I attended several years ago now, and she was the first person who really described the research related to food addiction in a way that for me was grounded in what the research had to offer and made a lot of sense. And I was just so drawn to her style and her approach. She's just been such an important influence for me. And so I really modeled a lot of my my study and my sort of reading of the literature in how she had how she had taught me. So that was really my first introduction to the topic. And ever since then, it's been something that I've really been interested in and have, you know, tried to follow the science as best I could as new research has come out over the years. Awesome. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into asking, um, you know, a a kind of a difficult question, but um, if you could just give us a couple of ideas about you know, where the research really does currently stand on this topic of food addiction and, and maybe, you know, some of the areas that, you know, really need more uh, attention. Yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Right. You're exactly right. It is a big question. So if I get talking and you want (laughs) to interrupt or pause me, don't hesitate at all. Okay. All right. But the the research is really interesting. I know sometimes in the non-diet community, 
folks, at, um, and not that this is wrong, but take this very sort of strong mm. food addiction is not a thing. It's not mm. a thing. Um, yeah. and, and that can feel, I think, a little bit harsh for some folks whose lived experience really feels indicative of an addiction. You know, this feeling that I feel so out of control, this feels out of my reach. I feel like the only time I have any semblance of peace is when I'm not eating certain foods. And so I tend to be, I think, I try to be a little bit more nuanced in how we look at what the research has to teach us. And so often when I'm, you know, teaching uh, students or interns or clinicians, I frame the conversation in almost like having two conversations at the same time that are a bit different, but they're related to each other. One is the feeling of food addiction, which is a very, very real feeling for many people. So for those of you who are listening to me speak and you're thinking, my gosh, my relationship to food has felt so out of control for so long, know that you are not alone in that and that feeling is a very real feeling but the science that describes what's happening inside of your body actually looks very very different than other types of research related to addiction and what the research really describes for us at least right now and i hope that research continues to be done because as you intimated kirsten there's actually many more questions than we have answers to. Mm -hmm. um, so I hope we get more research on this topic to really continue to elucidate and help us to become more clear what's happening. But what is happening inside of our brains and inside of our neurobiology is actually very different than other types of addictive substances. The things that have been most well studied being drug addiction in particular, looking at things like opiates and heroin and cocaine. And we've seen those comparisons in the media and it gets, the headlines get very sensationalized, right? That this right. Is between like cocaine and sugar. But what the neuroscientists actually have discovered is that that cross comparison isn't a very good comparison for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is that the drug addiction research has gotten so good over the past several decades that those researchers have really refined excellent models to study what is happening, especially within rodent models. And they've gotten really clear about best practices in the research. And unfortunately, a lot of the research that has been sort of modeled off of that, looking at sugar addiction, has failed to integrate a lot of the key components that keep the science really, really clear. And so what ends up happening is that we start comparing apples and oranges rather than apples to apples. So that could be, we could spend a whole hour talking <laughs> about right. design and the yeah. closet study design, but I'll, I'll just be really brief and say we have unfortunately plenty of studies where the study design in and of itself is, is problematic. And I'm going to make this really practical and really make it sense and, and relatable for those of you who are listening. So for example, when we see those rodents seeking after sugar and eating in a way that looks addictive-like and looks compulsive and looks sort of out of control. The only time that happens is when the rodents are intermittently fed the sugar. 
So what that looks like on an, what's called an inter, intermittent feeding paradigm is the, these poor rats are sort of thrust between not getting enough to eat and not having access to that sugar to then suddenly having all the access in the world. But the rats who don't have that intermittent feeding paradigm and have continuous access to the sugar don't actually demonstrate any behavior that looks addictive-like. It looks actually like completely what we would call in human terms, balanced, mm. normalized eating. So if we think about, gosh, what does that mean for our everyday lives? Well, what it really mirrors is the dieting paradigm, right? So that that dieting paradigm of restricting certain foods, not getting enough to eat, being in a calorie deficit will neurobiologically prime us to be very compelled around food so that when we do have access to it, our neurobiology really propels us forward to the food in a way that maybe feels very addiction-like. And so that's probably the most important kind of key mm -hmm. take home from the research is that difference between continuous access versus that intermittent access. Um, but I think that's so interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll take a pause and let you talk. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so interesting. And I think that you're right that it's, it's so relatable because, um, the, you know, so many people have experienced, you know, um, going on a diet or not even necessarily going on a diet, but cutting out certain foods or trying to do, you know, something um, where they're limiting, you know, bread or, you know, something high in carbohydrate and then really feeling that drive um, maybe later in the day or, or whatever um, for something really, you know, sugary. And I think it's important that, um, you know, what you're pointing out that it feels very out of control and it feels scary and it feels like, you know, you, you eat more than feels comfortable in your body. So of course, you know, the, I feel like the term, uh, food addiction can almost feel like a safe thing to hold on to a bit because it just it just makes sense. It resonates. It feels <laughs> it feels right. But um, I think it is so interesting. You know, when you talk about the research um, with the the rodent rodent research, like that really that only is present when there is restriction from carbohydrate, you know, mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. um, that kind of natural that nutrient that our body just really craves um, at a very basic level. So I, you know, and I think that that has a lot of, like you said, like a very practical implications for somebody who is feeling this way um, that maybe they're, you know, restricting certain foods isn't really serving them to feel better in their relationship to food, you know? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think really, really well summarized and a, and a little, kind of addition that I would make to what you were saying is that there's another kind of element that we have learned from brain imaging studies. And that is that same concept of restriction. Actually, and this is sort of, you know, scientific terms, amplifies or enlarges or sort of grows what's called food saliency or kind of the appeal of food related to how much attention we give it, how much we anticipate it, how rewarding it is, and how motivated we are to seek it. And so that's just kind of additional research that really demonstrates not only 
the observed behavior of those rodents going after that sugar substance even more and not only going after it more, but preferring the most dense sugary substance they can get their little paws on. But in addition to that, the experience of having those foods that have been previously restricted become more rewarding. And I don't say that to scare people um, because we aren't, we aren't sort of stuck in this dilemma that we've got some hopeful news around the corner, <laughs> but it's really to put this into perspective that our bodies have our backs and we are evolutionarily wired to protect us against starvation and to protect us against that deprivation because it's dangerous. And so we have these built-in mechanisms when there is a threat of deprivation or a threat of famine, our brains can't know that there's just food around the corner. We're just on a diet that we're not maybe going to be living on forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that it reads it as a threat. And so it's going to shift things inside your brain. They're going to increase your motivation and increase the likelihood of you actually getting enough to eat. So we run into trouble when we're battling against our natural neurobiology, which I think is, you know, just really, really, really interesting. Um, and yeah. if it's helpful, I can, I can also sort of spell out some of the other gaps in the science. If you I would love you to. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so some things for just kind of you and your listeners to be aware of is one of the reasons that I am interested in the research but very hesitant to apply a food addiction model is because the science is not there in any way, shape, or form. So from a a very sort of fundamental standpoint is that right now, researchers have not agreed upon a definition of food addiction. Nobody has been able to identify a singular substance that is addictive. Of course, they have looked at singular substance like sucrose, which is table sugar. Um, But the research that really tries to determine, is this the element that's addictive? And they have these different study designs. Um, the, The outcomes of those research are really mixed and really inconsistent and seem to be less related to a physiological mechanism and much more related to just an idea in the researcher's mind. There isn't a measurable outcome. So we know that when we're looking at um, substance use disorders and we're looking at changes that are happening physiologically, those changes have a numeric. They have something that can be measured. But right now, there's no mechanism of action that's measurable. So we aren't able to measure things like changes in blood sugar or changes in glycemic load or changes in insulin response. There's nothing actually happening in the body that's correlating consistently with a single substance. The other dilemma being we don't take food in in single substances. You know, we most of the vast majority of the time we're not eating plain table sugar. In fact, most people who feel binge-like or addictive-like to food, um, their experiences um, aren't with a single substance like that. They're with foods, you know, whether it's cake or ice cream or pizza. So that's a big, big problem is to have no working definition and no singular substance that has been able to be measured and sort of identified as actually being chemically addictive. So that's, that's one thing. Another kind of problem in the literature is that right now the vast majority of research studies utilize a scale to measure food addiction called the Yale food addiction scale and it 
is for me a bit like a thorn in my side because this Yale food addiction scale is based on clients or individuals lived experience, the description of their lived experience. Now lived experience is so important. I'm not minimizing that at all. However, diagnosing solely based on lived experience and calling it an addiction is really problematic because as we were just kind of describing and talking about together, that lived experience could be describing something else that isn't necessarily an addiction, but those feelings and experiences are real and true. So what the research is kind of concluding is that this Yale food addiction study is reflective of feelings or perception, but not necessarily anything that is distinctly different than what probably already falls under the umbrella of, you know, subclinical eating disorders or frank eating disorders. We know that folks who tend to score quite high on the Yale food addiction scale um, are also fairly likely, not all of the time, but fairly likely to also score high on diagnostic criteria for eating disorders. So it has what scientists call poor discriminant validity, meaning we don't know that it's really measuring something different than what we're already measuring when we diagnose an, an, an eating disorder. Right. So it's almost like, yeah, it, it's almost like um, they're just kind of, you know, I mean, I guess this is research itself, you know, it's, it's biased always, but it's almost just like putting on lenses and, you know, looking from a certain perspective and like trying, like literally trying to draw a conclusion, you know, from yeah. that information. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah, so, so interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. And, it, and one of the common themes I have seen in reading the research is folks who are not neuroscientists mm. who are making really big leaps. Because if you read actually the research of the neuroscientists who are, who are designing some of the research and interpreting the research, um, they're actually quite clear that, you know, that the research really does not support a food addiction model. But, you know, we've seen, we were talking about this earlier, right? Those headlines where you see the brain images and this is a normal brain and this is a sugar addicted brain and this is a cocaine brain and it's very sensationalized. Well, if you go back to the origins of those headlines, it goes back to a couple of doctors who are actually, um, they work in the realm of cardiovascular or heart health. And so you have these cardiologists who have read the research, misinterpreted it, and splashed really big headlines. It's a very, very sensational headline, the headlines that's going to get a lot of attention. And then you have the neuroscientists saying, no, 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 no. You're, you are not actually describing what's happening. What is actually true is that, yes, it is true that food and drugs do share the same pathways in the brain. However, these pathways are normal pathways where we experience food rewards and that those pathways are hijacked by substances like cocaine and like heroin and that those drugs hijack those pathways and alter them over time. But it's, it's not pathological that we would say, oh, it has this shared neurobiology 
Therefore, it's proof. There's a lot of natural rewards that exist inside of our neurobiology, whether it's a mother holding her baby or listening to music or laughing with friends or getting a hug. You have these natural reward systems. They are there. They're meant to be there. There's nothing wrong with them. It doesn't indicate illness. It's not pointing to a problem. <laughs> it's the drugs that come in and hijack those pathways. So um, it's, it's really this, this sort of skewing of what we're seeing and painting it as this very scary picture when, when the picture is really kind of getting misinterpreted. Oh, I love that. You do such a good job of explaining that. I love it. Um, let me kind of shift a little bit um, and ask you um, something about, I guess, the term food, food addiction or, you know, being addicted to food. So um, let me ask you, like, what, what do you think could be potentially harmful about somebody identifying themselves as being addicted to food? And what could maybe not be harmful about that? Yeah, I think it's a really, really thoughtful question. And my approach really tends to be as an, as an individual and as a clinician who, who works with people is who am I to tell you what your experience is and what's helpful and not helpful for you? If you feel clear that something is really, really helpful, it's really my job to understand more about that and for me to hear what about that feels so helpful to you? Mm. And if it doesn't feel helpful, it's still my job to understand what about that doesn't feel helpful. So the last thing I want is any listener or any client to feel judged by what feels really important to them or what feels right. really true for them. So I, I'll offer this lightly and all to say that all experiences are welcome. But what I have seen in my practice is that individuals who feel very, very committed to this idea that the only way for me to manage my food environment is to eliminate certain foods or to be abstinent from certain foods, that for a lot of people, and certainly this is not the case for everyone, but for a lot of people, what it looks like is a revolving door is a period of time of abstinence followed by an inability to sustain that abstinence, followed by a period of time where they feel demoralized, they feel out of control, they feel unable to manage food, they feel deep shame, and then it's back, back to that of avoiding of that food. And so it tends to be a very circular process and a very demoralizing one and a very frustrating one. Um, so sometimes I think being overly attached to the addiction model will prevent folks from being able to try on and see, is it possible, and this can be, of course, a very long process and not an easy process, but to learn how to negotiate this relationship with these foods in a way that maybe isn't quite so rigid or quite so binary. Um, I've seen a lot of folks in my years of doing this work who start out feeling like there is no way I can have these foods and then are shocked through treatment and through time and through exposure um, that they are actually really able to navigate and eat foods and they're in awe of it. They said, had you told me this a year ago, I never would have believed you. I would have told you flat out, you have no idea what you're talking <laughs> about. And they feel amazed. 
Um, so I guess that's, that's, you know, from my particular lens, because I, I really do believe it's possible to heal one's relationship with food and to make peace with food, although that process can look very different for lots of different people. Um, that's one of my concerns as a clinician is that it can keep people from the full experience of realizing they can become more capable with their eating than they think they're able to. Um, yes. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of it being helpful, I think that for some people, it really actually helps to minimize their sense of shame. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important that they are able through kind of more of the addiction framework, feel less shame and be able to sort of view it a little bit more objectively or view it a little bit more from that science lens saying, you know, this is my biology. It's not because I'm weak. It's not because I'm a bad person. And I think that that is something that's really important because the last thing that we want, of course, is for individuals and for our clients to feel, well, this is just because I'm a screw up or it's because I'm lazy or it's because, you know, I have no willpower. It's absolutely not any of those things, we can point our fingers towards diet culture. <laughs> this is an actually a very natural and predictable consequence to restriction and to dieting. This isn't about, we get so focused on the out of control part when our fingers should be pointing at diet culture, which teaches us that we can't be trusted, teaches us to restrict, teaches us to starve. And this is just a natural outcome of that process. So I think yes. if it helps folks to feel less shame, um, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing and important part of the healing process. Oh, I love that. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you, Marcy, before we wrap up, um, you know, just to direct um, this to a listener who, you know, is feeling like they are um, addicted to a particular food. And they really, I mean, I think you've, you've kind of been speaking to this person the, the whole time, but um, if you could do something to kind of just summarize and wrap up for that person who's feeling that fear or shame around food and, and what would your advice be for them right now? Sure. Well, one thing I will say is that everybody's path to healing is going to be different. So I'm going to offer this you know, with, I guess, the, the caveat saying, if this doesn't feel helpful for you, that is okay. And this isn't the only way forward. And to say that the process is, can be a very long, as I was saying, and, and kind of complicated one. So I, I always feel a little bit hesitant for my advice to sound too simplistic. And then for folks to feel like, oh my gosh, she's supposedly some expert. And if she says this is the way to get better and I can't do it, then I'm really screwed. Mm. Uh, so no, I'm, I'm really going to give you a short little paragraph on something that I really take a lot of time with, with my clients. But one thing I would offer up is to think a little bit differently from, for instance, I can't be trusted with ice cream or I'm out of control with ice cream and to change it a little bit and to say, okay, I feel out of control with ice cream when, okay, when it's the end of a long day, when I'm emotionally really revved up, when I still have really negative thoughts and judgments about eating ice cream, when I haven't eaten well during the day and I'm overly hungry, when I have a, a huge amount of it all at my fingertips 
and I haven't really developed the skills on how to navigate it quite yet. So you're putting in kind of a little bit more clarity and fleshing it out a little bit more specifically. And then you can think about, well, what are ways that perhaps I could experiment with slowly allowing myself to have these foods or give myself permission, but to do it in a way that really sets myself up to have a positive experience. So maybe I make sure that I'm with a friend rather than alone, or I make sure I'm really well nourished and not overly hungry, or I have it in the afternoon and I'm out and about, or, and I've really got a plan in place for how I'm going to manage my feelings after, you know, that you really think about what are the things that make me vulnerable to having a hard time and, and how can I pay attention to those so I can set myself up and just have little moments of practice. You know, I talk about that learning to eat again, especially after we've been so brainwashed by diet culture is that that process is skill building. So we just want to think of it as like, I'm just learning a skill here. And just like we don't, you know, I often use this analogy, we don't just hop on a unicycle. We want to learn how to ride a bike, right? We start on a balanced bike. We start on something close to the ground. We've got both feet on the ground. And we want to be patient and do the same with ourselves with eating. And that can help us to feel, I think, a little bit more competent, a little bit more capable. You know, I had a client where we worked on ice cream for a very long time and she started with those little single serve cups because that was the thing that allowed her to feel like, well, this much I can manage it. I can sort of handle it emotionally, yeah. you know, I can my head around it. I think sometimes for some people saying, all right, no more rules, bring all the ice cream <laughs> to the house. And for some people that works great mm -hmm. and that's fantastic. But for other people, it's just going to feel like one big binge fest, you know, night after night after night yes. and can reinforce, see, here's more proof. I can't be trusted. So again, yes. if you are one of those people where you're like, Marcy, I threw out the rule book and I just went for it and I'm doing great. Oh my gosh, don't let me stand in your way. That is fantastic. But if you feel like you've tried that or you've been scared to try that, um, you can maybe go about it in a way that maybe is a little bit kind of dip your toe in, give yourself a little bit more structure, and that might help you to feel kind of like you've got more of the guardrails on. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Um, I think that, you know, that, that's a perspective that people don't always hear when they're hearing about intuitive eating. And, um, you know, I love that there's not, there's not a right way of doing it. It's, it's um, what's going to feel best for you and feel comfortable for you. And I think people need to hear that. So I really appreciate that perspective. Yeah, I hope it, I hope it helps, you know, that letting, letting go of the diet rules and figuring out how to give permission for most people is very destabilizing mm -hmm. and very scary. And it is a wobbly process. It's not picture, quote unquote, picture perfect. Like when you're following the rules of the rule book of a diet <laughs> you know, for the 24 hours or the month that you're able to sort of follow those rules, you right. know, that it can feel really scary. So it's not going to feel like how it can feel following a diet. But um, it can feel helpful to kind of put in a, a little bit of a process to it so it doesn't feel maybe quite so overwhelming. Absolutely. I love that. Well, I want to thank you so much, Marcy, for all of that you've, you've thrown out there for us today. Um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you for a bit. Oh, it was so great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me on. And I, I sure hope that this message has been helpful for someone. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Marcy Evans. For more information about how to find her, 
on the interweb. Um, you can look at the show notes. You can also easily find her on Instagram. Her handle is at Marcy RD. So it's M-A-R-C-I-R-D. So definitely go check her out. And if you have a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes, that would be really, really helpful. It really does help um, get this into more people's hands and really spreading um, the message of intuitive eating. So even if you just click on the ratings, you know, give it however many stars um, you think feels right. Or leaving a review is also really helpful. Um, It helps me to have some feedback about what you're liking and what you'd like to see more of. Uh, So I'd really appreciate that as well. All right, guys, until next time. Bye-bye.